0: Good morning, Edgewood, Uh, glad you're with us this morning. Uh, We look forward again to being back as soon as possible, but uh, in the meantime, we trust that God by his spirit will continue to uh, move on our hearts and minds, especially through the ministry of his word. Uh, We know that God is not limited um, by our uh, creaturely limitations. Uh, We're finite, but he's not. And so I'm gonna open us up with a word of prayer and ask God to do for us what only he can do And, uh, just know that, uh, the pastors, the elders here continue to, uh, to pray for you. Uh, we think of you daily and, uh, just want to encourage you right up front to, uh, to let us know if there's anything that we can do for you, uh, any way that we can pray for you, or even if there is any way that we can minister to you in some sort of a practical way during this time. Uh, but let's pray and then we'll, uh, we'll turn our attention to the passage that we have this morning. Father, thank you that your mercies are new every morning and that you are great in your faithfulness. We ask now that as we come to your word that you would give us uh, eyes to see, ears to hear, minds to comprehend, hearts to love the truth as you have given it to us in your word, particularly as it reveals to us uh, through the ministry of your Holy Spirit, uh, the work of Christ on our behalf and uh, your mind and your heart in redeeming a people for yourself. Be with us now, we ask. We pray that even in separation, even in distance, that you will show yourself to be more than able uh, to do exceeding abundantly beyond all that we could ask or think. And it's in the name of Christ Jesus, our Savior, that we pray, amen. We're gonna be finishing up our study of Second Samuel today. Let me just go ahead and put a plug in for our, our next study. We finished 2 Samuel today in 2 Samuel 24, so if you have your Bible, you can go ahead and turn there and get ready. Um, next week, we're gonna be starting in on a study of the Gospel of Mark. Um, one of the things that we'll do, uh, hopefully early this, this week, uh, is to provide some sort of a, a reading schedule or a study schedule. For the Mark study, I would encourage you at least for for this week until we put something out on the Facebook page and uh, begin to email to some of our Sunday school teachers uh, at least go to Mark and read the first chapter uh, ahead of next Sunday, or if you don 't read the whole chapter, at least read maybe the first fifteen verses or so uh, just to familiarize yourself with the text and to hopefully uh, get yourself ready to to read and think through. Uh, a little bit more the following Sunday. So we finish 2 Samuel today, start on uh, Mark chapter 1 next week. Now, all that being said, let me shift gears then to 2 Samuel chapter 24. And uh, just by way of reminder, at the risk of beating a dead horse in terms of the structure of this last closing unit in 2 Samuel that shows uh, from chapters 21 to chapters 24 a very distinct pattern that, uh, that we would say is intentional. So in chapter 21, we start off with a natural disaster, move into a discussion of David's military men, and we move to a song. Then we get a song, followed by a discussion of David's military men, followed by a disaster that we read about here in chapter 24. It's interesting then when you consider that in this concluding unit, you have on the front end and on the back end, these, na- these uh, national disasters and the focus that's put on David in his response, his role as king in these. If you remember back to chapter 21, remember that the, uh, the famine, which was the national disaster at that time, uh, was brought on because of uh, some previous sin during the reign of Saul, So the sin is no fault of David's. The people are guilty though because of the sin that Saul had committed against the Gibeonites. But primarily what we see in David's reaction to the sin and being made aware of God's judgment moving through the land, we see that David as king is responsible for executing justice. That sin has to be paid for, that the law must be upheld, and that the king as God's representative as his delegated ruler, is the one who is responsible to see to it that justice is faithfully executed in the land. Here in this, uh, this counterpart to that, the national disaster that we're gonna see here in a minute is some sort of a plague that comes through the land. Uh, we'll get to that. But one of the things I wanna put up front, uh, just for the sake of time, is that whereas in chapter 21, David shows that the role of the king is to administer justice Faithfully through the land. Here, what the distinguishing characteristic or feature of David as king is his role as intercessor, uh, the one who goes before the Lord on behalf of the people, who looks after the good of the nation, and takes upon himself the responsibility for their safety and their well being. That plays a very significant role, particularly as we get about midway into the chapter. So, for the sake of time, we're not going to read every verse. We're going to try to stick to the main uh, plot points that develop in this chapter. So, as we start off, uh, begin with me in the first four verses of 2 Samuel 24. 2 Samuel 24, verse 1, Now again, the anger of the Lord burned against Israel, and it incited David against them to say, Go number Israel and Judah. The king said to Joab, the commander of the army who was with him, go about now through all the tribes of Israel from Dan to Beersheba and register the people that I may know the number of the people. But Joab said to the king, now may the Lord your God add to the people a hundred times as many as they are while the eyes of my Lord the king still see. But why does my Lord the king delight in this thing? Nevertheless, the king's word prevailed against Joab and against the commanders of the army. So Joab and the commanders of the army went out from the presence of the king to register the people of Israel. I'm gonna pause right there and make a couple comments. Um, one, let, well, I t- let's do it this way. Um, David numbering the people. Let me start with a detail and then kind of pull back to a broader picture, particularly in terms of the Lord's work in this, in this section. Um, There has been a lot of question and discussion as to what it is in this numbering of the people, this census that David does, that uh, makes him culpable or um, moves the Lord to act in judgment. Uh, My wife had asked me earlier in the week, was that wrong for David to take a census? And without even thinking or reading through, I said, well, yeah, he shouldn't have numbered the people because, I don't know, whatever, fill in the blank. Uh, In fact, there is no indication in the text in the Old Testament law uh, that the king was prohibited from numbering the people. There's actually a a somewhat obscure text in Exodus chapter 30 that actually provides for a numbering of the people. However, it says that when the people are numbered, particularly the military men, that one of the things that they're to do is to provide uh, sort of um, an atonement tax, if you will, Every man that's numbered has to pay an atonement price. That's something that's not done here. And so some people think that the problem is not the fact that David is numbering the people, but the fact that he doesn't number them according to the law, which is to say that all of the people who are numbered then don't in turn pay the atonement money that is required in Exodus 30. That may be, we're just simply not told. I think that maybe one of the things to take into account is what happens, uh, a statement that's made later in the passage in verse nine. If you skip down to verse nine, uh, it says, and Joab gave the number of the registration of the people to the king, and there were in Israel 800,000 valiant men who drew the sword, and the men of Judah were 500,000 men. It's interesting that at the outset, it sounds like what David is telling Joab to do is to go out and to get a nationwide census, count all the people, whereas verse 9 says basically in summary that Joab came back with a number of how many fighting men were in the nation, It may be then that the problem here in numbering the people is not first and foremost that David is trying to get an accurate count of the people as much as David is trying to see what his military strength happens to be in terms of number of men who are able to fight. And if so, is it possible that the reason that David is doing this is because he's putting more confidence in the natural abilities of man, the natural abilities of the kingdom rather than In the Lord's ability to save and protect, is David, um, in a prideful sort of way, putting his focus on the growth of the nation? He's, He's judging by what a man sees rather than continuing to put his focus on the Lord's provision and on the Lord's deliverance. Somewhere in here, it seems that although the numbering of the people in and of itself may not be wrong, something is not right about David's motivation or about the intent behind it we'll turn to that in just a moment. Just as important though in this opening of the chapter is what we get in the very first verse, that the anger of the Lord burned against Israel and it incited David against them to number the people. If we're not careful, we can read 2 Samuel 24 1 and develop a picture in our mind of God as being very capricious or arbitrary, sort of like he just wakes up one morning on the wrong side of the bed and says, you know what, these people really irritate me. Let's get to smiting. And so he tricks David or compels David to number the people as an excuse to then go about and execute his judgment. But it's important to remember that while we don't necessarily get a full explanation as to what it is that has caused the Lord to be angry, the rest of the biblical text in other words the rest of the bible tells us over and over again that god is not like the gods of other nations he's not like the gods that we imagine in our head and one of the distinguishing features one of the distinguishing characteristics of this god who reveals himself in the bible is that he is patient that he is merciful that he is long-suffering that he is slow to anger And that he clearly reveals himself to his people. Because of that then, while we may not know what it is that makes the people, uh, that puts the people in danger of God's judgment, we know that there is a reason for it. And so whether we are given this answer or not, we need to turn back and to consider what we know about the character of God. God. And here is a place in Scripture where we're reminded over and over again that just as important as reading the text as we find it is to read the text as we find it and also within the the broader picture of Scripture so that we don't abuse the notion or the character of God in light of one verse. So God is going to be just we know that there is a just reason for this action, even if we may not be able to explain it all. And so God, in His inscrutable way, works in this situation so that He brings about judgment on the people. Skip down to verse 10. David has numbered the people. He, comes, he receives the report from Joab, and in verse 10... Through verses 14, we read this. Now, David's heart troubled him after he had numbered the people. So David said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. But now, O Lord, please take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have acted very foolishly. When David arose in the morning, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Gad, David's seer, saying, Go and speak to David. Thus the Lord says... I'm offering you three things. Choose for yourself one of them, which I will do to you. So Gad came to David and told him and said to him, Shall seven years of famine come to you in your land? Or will you flee three months before all your foes while they pursue you? Or, option number three, Shall there be three days pestilence in your land? Now consider and see what answer I shall return to him who sent me. And then notice David's statement. Then David said to Gad, I am in great distress. Let us now fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercies are great, but do not let me fall into the hand of man. That is a significant statement here in this passage. God gives David the opportunity to actually choose The punishment or to choose the discipline that God will mete out because of David's sin. And remember that however we understand David's sin in counting the people, even that has to be tied into the idea that God is intending this act of judgment to be brought on the people at large for some other unnamed sin that we're not aware of. In this then, we wanna come back to the character of God over and over again, not just in terms of how we see it in the in the narration of the story, but even in David's comment, as a man who is guilty and who is under God's judgment. I would encourage you, if you've got something that, uh, maybe a pen or a, a piece of paper, if you wanna jot down some uh, references, in Psalm 119, starting, I think it's around verse 67 and maybe through verse 75, there are three verses they're kind of scattered around, starting at Psalm 119.67. And the verses say this. The first one says, Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. The second one says, It was good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. And then the third one says, I know that all your judgments are righteous, and that in faithfulness you have afflicted me. It's fascinating to see in light of all this that even when God is bringing judgment on his people, even when his people suffer for their sin, that God does not lose or does not relinquish or does not minimize, that's probably a better word, does not minimize in any way his faithfulness to his people even when he judges, even when he disciplines here, it is ultimately in faithfulness that he does that for their good, to turn them, to drive them back to his word so that they would turn and find the words of life, so that they would live according to the clear commandments of God to find life and blessing in it. That is a good, faithful God who does those things for a wayward, rebellious people. But then also David adds to this. When he has the opportunity to choose between three forms of punishment, it seems rather odd that David would say, well, we can suffer sort of a natural famine in the land. We can suffer from the hands of our enemies, mere men, or we can suffer directly from the hand of God. And David says, put me in God's hands. Let him deal with me. Not, notice, not because... David thinks that God is weaker or is incapable of bringing about the same uh, level or depth of judgment and pain in the discipline as, say, would be experienced in a famine or would be experienced at the hands of their enemies. It's actually not that at all. If anything, God is able to inflict more damage, more suffering. But David goes to the character of God and says, put me in the hands of the Lord, verse 14, for his mercies are great. As great, as awesome, as terrifying, the author of Hebrews says, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And yet David, because of God's covenant relationship with his people, and because of the relationship that David has with God, David says, as fearful as what it is to be laid bare before God's disciplining, judging hand. I would far rather suffer from the pains and the affliction that God brings himself because at least I know that God, while he judges, is also merciful. So there's a a fabulous statement that goes along with this. One of the psalms that David writes, Psalm 145, verse 17. Listen to what David says in another context, but that fits so well with David's uh, statement of faith here about the mercies of God. He says in Psalm 145, 17, the Lord is righteous in all his ways. Stop right there. The Lord is righteous in all his ways. Everything that the Lord does is right. When God judges David for his sin, God is right to do that. When God judges David's sin as a way also to judge the people for their sin, God is right in doing that. He is right and always does what is right. He is righteous in all his ways. And then comes the second half of that. And kind in all his deeds. Not God is righteous in all his ways but kind in all his deeds and he is both just and kind. God as he is handing out Justice, a just response to the sin of his people, is at the same time kind in executing his justice. David is essentially throwing himself at the mercy of God's character, believing and trusting that at the end of the day it is far better for him, and by extension far better for God's people to humble themselves and to be at the disposal of God's mercy than to deal with any other situation or any other people. And so we, we go to the next scene. The Lord sends an angel, an angel of the Lord goes through. A pestilence is brought, some sort, of a, some sort of a plague. This is almost, oddly enough, ironically, this is almost very similar to some of the language that we have in the Exodus account of how the Lord sends an angel through Egypt and brings about this one last plague in which uh, the firstborn are struck down. Here, however, God is sending an angel through the land and he's striking down his own people because of their sin. And we read in verses 15 and following, the Lord sent a pestilence upon Israel from the morning until the appointed time and 70,000 men of the people from Dan to Beersheba died. When the angel stretched out his hand toward Jerusalem to destroy it, the Lord relented from the calamity and said to the angel who destroyed the people, "'It is enough. Now relax your hand.' And the angel of the Lord was by the threshing floor of Araunah the Jebusite. Then David spoke to the Lord when he saw the angel who was striking down the people and said, "'Behold, it is I who have sinned, and it is I who have done wrong, but these sheep, what have they done?' Please let your hand be against me and against my father's house. The statement that the Lord stops the angel from continuing his judgment on the city of Jerusalem is actually when you read here and when you read in a parallel account in 1 Chronicles 21, this actually seems to be a summary statement ahead of or out of chronological order. In other words, what actually seems to happen when you take 2 Samuel 24 and 1 Chronicles 21 and you put these things together is that David sees the hand of God moving in the presence of or in the actions of this angel of the Lord. When he sees the angel of the Lord coming to Jerusalem, David cries out to the Lord for mercy and then as we read in the next verses, verses 18 and following, He's told by the prophet Gad, David, build an altar, and David prays for the people, prays for himself, and he offers up a burnt offering and peace offerings. In other words, what it is that stays the Lord's hand, so to speak, or that brings a pause or an end to the judgment are two things. One, David's prayer to the Lord and David's sacrifice. And, of course, here we're just being begged to come deeper into Scripture and to see that this is one of the recurring themes all the way through God's dealings with His people. That, again, just as we said, while God is righteous and just in all His ways, He is also kind in all His deeds... That God, as he is judging the sin of his people, yet his ears are open to the cries of the afflicted. He hears the prayers of David and he responds to the prayers of a man. That he looks and he sees the sacrifice that David makes. And he says, enough judgment. The Lord shows over and over again that he takes far more delight in showing mercy and kindness to his people than he does and executing judgment and discipline. What a God. Notice also the heart that David displays. This is David at his best. David can sink down into the depths of sin and despondency just like all of us, but David also in his best moments gives us a great example of what the Lord is looking for in the hearts of his people and also gives us a fantastic model of what we'll see perfectly in the work of Christ himself where David calls out to God, asks him on behalf of the people to show mercy. He calls out to God and basically says, put the judgment on me because the sin is with me and spare the people. Of course, all of this, anticipates the greater high priestly prayer and cries that Jesus himself would utter to the Father when he says, forgive them for they know not what they do. When Jesus as the substitute goes and not because of any sin of his own but because of the sin of his people stands in their place and willingly takes the just payment of sin on himself so that the sheep can be saved. And then as we move to the end, again, we're kind of having to to hop over some of these verses, but I, I want to go down and I want to tie in some other threads in this passage. There are so many things that we could say here, but as we're keeping in mind David's intercessory prayer on behalf of the people, we're told in verses 18 and following that one of the things that David has to do in order to make an offering, a sacrifice to stay this judgment, he has to purchase a piece of land from a Jebusite who lives there. He purchases this land and it's there on that land that he purchases where he builds an altar to, to offer up the burnt offering and the peace offering that stops God's hand of judgment moving through the land. At the end of the chapter, if you skip down to, let's see, Let's say verse 24, the last two verses of 2 Samuel. 2 Samuel 24, 24, however the king said to Arunah, Arunah was just going to give him the land. And David says, no, 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 but I will surely buy it from you for a price, for I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God, which cost me nothing. So David bought the threshing floor and the oxen for 50 shekels of silver. And then notice verse 25, David built there an altar to the Lord and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. Thus the Lord was moved by prayer for the land and the plague was held back from Israel. At personal cost to David, David buys a piece of land so that he can build an altar, so that he can make sacrifices to the Lord to accompany his prayers. And the Lord sees the sacrifices, hears the prayers, and he stays the plague. I want to tie this in, though, to the bigger picture of Scripture. If you have your Bible with you and you hold your place here, if you turn just briefly over to 2 Chronicles chapter 3, we read this. 2 Chronicles chapter 3, verse 1. Then Solomon began to build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem on Mount Moriah, where the Lord had appeared to his father David at the place that David had prepared on the threshing floor of the Jebusite. He began to build on the second day of the second month. In other words, the site that David purchases is the very site where he will move the tabernacle into Jerusalem and is ultimately the site where the temple itself, the meeting place between God and men, will be constructed. By the way, the other thing that is in there that is not explicitly stated but that any good reader of the Old Testament would make a connection with is that the location is also said to be Mount Moriah. Mount Moriah is the place where Abraham offered up Isaac on the altar as a sacrifice to the Lord in Genesis 22 and where the Lord in his mercy And in his love for Abraham stayed Abraham's hand from killing his son and substituted another sacrifice in Isaac's place. So that here we see God judging the sins of his people and yet God's mercy and faithfulness shining through in a brilliant sort of way and in some sort of way being memorialized almost through all the epics of biblical history This location where God stops the judgment because of the prayers of a a king on behalf of his people and where he stops the judgment because of the sacrifice on their behalf is the same place where generations earlier he had stopped the death of Isaac, the death of the nation and had substituted a sacrificial animal. And where for generations to come, sacrifices would be brought over and over again, prayers would be offered up over and over again for God to look on the sins of the people and to be gracious and to forgive. All of that preparing us for the ultimate king, the perfect king who would come, a descendant of David, who would model perfectly and completely what it means for a king to rule over his people with grace and goodness and truth and righteousness such that he would intercede for his people, such that he would offer up prayers and supplications for them, such that he would offer up even himself to be the sacrifice, the payment for sin, rather than allowing his people to suffer. And it's on that note that the author closes out the narrative story from 1 Samuel through 2 Samuel, climaxing on the the person of David the king and so we end on a note in which David is interceding for the people, showing himself to be a righteous king, but we know even with this good showing that David has of himself, we know from earlier readings that David leaves a lot to be desired. We see in David the, an inkling, a glimpse of what it is that our hearts really want in a true king, in a real king, but it's not in David that we're going to find what our hearts truly desire. It's not in Solomon, where the kingdom reaches the heights of glory. It's not going to be until we get to Jesus that our hearts are finally satisfied and we say, ah, this. This is the king that we have always wanted. One who deals faithfully with the weaknesses of his people. One who does not turn a blind eye to sin and yet who pays himself the price to reconcile God's people to himself. Let's pray. Father, how we thank you and praise you for the beauty of your word and how in real time, in real history in time and space, you have worked faithfully through many years, through many ways, through many people, all as a way to prepare us and to get us ready for the perfect work of your son Jesus, who would come as the true heir to, the, to David's throne, not merely to rule over the nation of Israel, but to rule over the world. Thank you that we have in your son a better intercessor than David ever was, who not only interceded, who not only prayed for his followers during his earthly ministry, but we're told even now continues to intercede for us at the right hand of the Father. We thank you for this. Prepare us now, even as we go through this week, to continue to turn our minds on your righteousness and on your kindness, that it would change the way that we live and that it would even prepare us for our, uh, the beginning of our study in Mark next week. We pray all these things in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen.
1: Well, thank you, Jonathan. Uh, as he mentioned, that concludes our Sunday school study of Second uh, Samuel and excited about next week, uh, entering a study of the uh, gospel of Mark. Uh, but good morning. Uh, this actually marks the uh, fifth Sunday that we have not been able to meet as a church uh, family. And let me say from the depths of my heart, I miss you, uh, deeply love you. And I'm longing for that day when we can uh, come back together. And I believe that's the sentiment of the entire church family, as I know you uh, sincerely love uh, one another. Uh, we know that we will uh, have the live stream at least one more Sunday, the last Sunday in April. And then the end of this month we'll sort of reevaluate things. and hopefully we can uh, come back together uh, sooner than later. Uh, We're thankful, as you know from the news, that uh, in most of the country, the occurrences of the virus are going down, and so we're seeing a very, very good uh, trend uh, where there will be the opportunity to begin to open things up as well as our churches as well. So just uh, be praying God will give uh, wisdom and understanding there. But again, we're really looking forward to when we can get back together again. Uh, So next Sunday... Uh, Jonathan with the Sunday School lesson at 10 and then the uh, worship service with uh, Andy leading praise and worship at 1030 followed by uh, my message Uh, keep in mind that Jonathan Wilson our youth minister is providing two programs each week one for our boys and girls our children entitled adventures in praiseville and then a second one for our youth ministry For our young people, uh, level up Bible study. And then they're also providing a daily devotional, uh, Jonathan and some of the other youth leaders for our youth and their families. So please take advantage of all of that. And of course, you can access the live stream not only on the church uh, website, the homepage there, but on Facebook as well. So please take advantage of that and and share that with uh, others so they can take advantage of it as well. Uh, we may ha- be having some individuals uh, tuning in that are not a part of this church family. We are so glad to have you, and we pray that when we are able to uh, come back together and uh, meet as a church that uh, you'll decide to uh, visit and uh, join with us. Uh, let me continue to encourage you to be faithful in your giving. I will share with you over these last f- uh, five weeks, we have seen people uh, A very deep uh, reduction, decrease uh, in giving. And we know these these are very difficult days for for many of you. And we're just asking, according to the ability God gives you, the provision God makes you, uh, just be faithful in your giving. And we trust, as we each are faithful, that even in this time of crisis, uh, through the generosity of God's people, uh, He will meet. Uh, the church's needs. So we're, we're confident in that, and we just encourage you to continue to be faithful uh, the part that you would play. And uh, keep in mind, you can either mail your uh, church tithe offering gifts in. Uh, you can bring them by the church office. We The church office remains open uh, Monday through Thursday, 9 to 5. Uh, or you can use the online giving. Just go to the church home website, upper right-hand corner. Just click on the uh, Online giving, and it's uh, very simple. We'll lead you right through that. Uh, I want to encourage you to also uh, continue to pray for uh, June and Jerry Gaylor's daughter, Jennifer. We mentioned this last Sunday. She had uh, a very serious open heart surgery in Atlanta. Uh, She came through that surgery. uh, Probably going to have at least another two weeks in the hospital in Atlanta. So just continue to pray for her that all goes uh, well and that God would bless and encourage the family. And then, of course, Sarah Worthington. You know, Sarah just lost her husband, Al, and then right behind that, she developed an intestinal obstruction that put her in the hospital, discovered that she had the coronavirus uh, this past week, uh, she uh, went through surgery for the obstruction. That went very well. She's doing very well, and we're very thankful that she has not shown any symptoms related to the virus. So, just pray that God will uh, bring her through this time to a to a complete uh, to a complete uh, healing. So, uh, and then also uh, Patty Stofer, that's our church uh, receptionist. Uh, she lost uh, her nephew Michael. Uh, just uh, about two days ago, uh, that would, her, uh, Michael's mother would be, of course, uh, Patty's sister, Judy. And so we want to pray for them in the loss of Michael. He had a very uh, severe stroke that uh, was the cause of his death. So uh, bow with me in prayer, and then after I pray, we'll turn it over to uh, Andy to lead us in uh, praise and worship through music. Father, uh, we do uh, truly miss one another Uh, We do truly long for the day when we can come back together as a church family and to uh, sing our praises together in your presence and uh, sit under the instruction of your word and to uh, fellowship with one another and through that fellowship find encouragement uh, for our hearts. Uh, We thank you for the very, very good signs related to the virus uh, throughout most of the nation and we pray in your infinite uh, mercy. Uh, that uh, you would show us, uh, even as Jonathan talked about uh, a moment ago, uh, your kindness uh, in, this, uh, in this disease and uh, mitigating it, uh, bringing it to an end uh, where the country can uh, open back up, as well as our churches as well to enjoy fellowship uh, once again. And we will trust you for that. We pray your continued healing uh, for uh, Jennifer Gaylor. Uh, that you would uh, raise her up, keep her free from complications, and that she would be able to uh, get back home here to her uh, family. We continue to pray for Sarah. Uh, Thank you for the success of her surgery this past week, the good outcome uh, that she's doing well related to the virus. And we just pray you'll bring her as well to a place of complete healing and restoration that we would continue to enjoy fellowship Uh, with her. And then for uh, Patty and her sister Judy and the loss of Michael, uh, we pray you would uphold them uh, with your grace and your comfort and carry them through this time of grief. Now, Lord, we surrender uh, this service to you uh, as we lift up our hearts in praise and worship, uh, turning away from our circumstances to see the glory of our Lord, to put our trust in Him. And then, Lord, I pray that Uh, We would be attentive uh, to the instruction of your word that will come uh, in just uh, a few moments and that we would submit to that teaching and that we would know the power of your word coupled with the ministry of the Holy Spirit uh, bringing change to our lives, bringing transformation, uh, bringing growth, uh, taking us deeper into intimacy with you as in these days uh, we lean on you. Uh, to know your strength in our time of weakness and need. For it's in Christ's name we do pray. Amen.
2: Well, we do thank you for tuning in this morning. As the rain falls, I hear the thunder booming. Uh, Just one great reminder that our God reigns, uh, that our God is powerful, and that our God is protecting us in the midst of uh, so many different things. things that are going on, and I um, just want to piggyback off of Jonathan Merritt's Sunday school lesson, as he spoke of God's mercy, and how God's mercy is so much more than his judgment upon, uh, upon us. Uh, a, a verse of scripture, uh, Matthew chapter 9 verse 13 says, but because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions, it is by grace you have been saved and so as we come to a time of worship together uh, a lot of times we come and we we just wanna start celebrating and praising the Lord um, for all the good things he's done for us and we forget about that three letter word sin that we all have Um, and it's kinda an ugly word we don't like to talk about it but the fact is that he had mercy on our sin and so we wanna open up this morning with a wonderful song that I think most of you will recognize, you'll be familiar with, as we praise Him for, uh, for His beautiful work in sending His one and only Son, Jesus, to die upon the cross so that we could have mercy, so that our transgressions would be forgiven, and that by His grace, we are saved. Let's praise Him.
3: Praise the Lord. His mercy is more. Every morn, our sins they are many, His mercy is more. What love could remember? Not this we have done, omniscient, all knowing, He counts not their sum, throw into a sea without bottom or shore. Our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. Let's sing that again. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. His mercy is more. Stronger than darkness, new every morn. Our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. Patience would wait as we constantly roam What Father so tenderly calling us home He welcomes the weakest, the vilest, the poor Our sins, they are many, His mercy is more Praise the Lord, His mercy is more our sins they are many his mercy is more and in Ephesians chapter 2 he says have mercy on me O God
2: according to your unfailing love according to the great compassion blot out my transgressions and wash away all my iniquities and cleanse me from all sin let that be your prayer this morning as we reflect on his word as we reflect on Jesus
3: riches. What riches of kindness He lavished on us. His blood was the payment, His life was the cost. We stood neath the debt we could never afford. Our sins, they are many, His mercy is more. Just sing it out. Praise the Lord. our sins they are many his mercy is more our sins they are many his mercy is more our sins they are many his mercy is more
2: just as Jonathan uh, said, that uh, he has two categories. He's going to judge us one day, and that every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is our Lord and Savior. And so this next song speaks of there being a lion and the lamb, um, and it speaks of his judgment one day upon us. Every knee will bow, every tongue will confess. He's coming on the clouds. Kings and kingdoms will bow down to him, um, and every chain will break, and broken hearts declare his praise. I'm just going to invite you to stand now in reverence to our God, our Father, and as we give him praise, as we give him all glory, and there may be some of you at home that may not know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. My prayer is that through this song that you would know that Jesus Christ is the sacrificial lamb. He died upon the cross for your heart. He died upon the cross for your soul so that one day we would be uh, with him in paradise. Let's continue to praise.
3: the clouds as king and kingdoms will bow down and every chain will break as broken hearts declare his praise who can stop the lord almighty our god is the lion the lion of judah he's roaring with power and fighting our battles And every knee will bow before him our god is the lamb the lamb that was slain for the sins of the world his blood breaks the chains and every knee will bow before the lion and the lamb oh every knee will bow before the lion and the lord So open up the gates so open up the gates make a way before the king of Kings. our God who calls us saved is here to set the captives free who can stop the Lord let's praise it our God is the lion the lion of Judah he's roaring with power and fighting our battles and every knee will bow before you our god is the lamb the lamb who was slain for the sins of the world the blood breaks his chains and every knee will bow before him oh every knee will bow before the lion and the lamb Oh. Can stop him? Who can stop the Lord Almighty? Who can stop the Lord Almighty? Amen. Not even a virus. Who can stop the Lord Almighty? Who can stop the Lord Almighty? Let's proclaim it there. Who can stop the Lord Almighty? who can stop the lord Almighty? would you proclaim who can stop the lord almighty who can stop the lord oh let's do that one more time and, and who can stop the lord almighty oh who can stop the lord our god is a lion the lion of judah roaring with power and he's fighting our battles and every knee will bow before you our God is the lamb the lamb who was slain for the sins of the world his blood breaks the chains and every knee will bow before the lion and the lamb oh every knee will bow before the lion and oh oh, 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 and every knee will bow before the lion and the lamb Oh, 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 oh oh every knee will bow before the lion and the
2: lamb amen and as we continue to praise him uh, another word of scripture in Philippians chapter 4 says, Always be joy. I'm sorry, always be full of joy in the Lord. I say again, rejoice. Let everyone see that you are considerate in all you do. Remember, the Lord is coming soon. Don't worry about anything. Instead, pray about everything. Tell God what you need and thank Him for all He has done. Then you will experience God's peace, which exceeds anything we can understand. And a lot of times, I will say that prayer over somebody uh, that that God would allow them to have peace that surpasses all understanding. But he's not just going to allow you to have that. He wants you to seek him. As he says there, don't worry about anything. Instead, pray about everything. Tell God what you need and thank him for all he has done. Then you will experience God's peace, which exceeds anything we can understand. So we do have a part uh, in that. And his peace will guard your hearts and minds as you live in Christ Jesus. And now, dear brothers and sisters, one final thing, fix your thoughts on what is true and honorable and right and pure and lovely and admirable. Think about things that are excellent and worthy of praise. Keep putting into practice all you have learned and and received from me everything you have heard from me. And we continue to worship him in spirit and truth as he is so worthy to be praised.
3: is us the only one who could ever say, worthy of every breath we could ever breathe? We live for you. Oh, we live for you. Would you sing, Holy? Holy, there is no one like you, there is none beside you. Open up my eyes in wonder and show me who you are and fill me with your heart and lead me in your love to those around me we are
2: the church we need to show that love to those around us holy
3: worthy of every song we could ever sing worthy of all the praise we could ever breathe Worthy of every breath we could ever breathe We live for you. Amen, let's praise Jesus. Jesus the name love every other name Jesus the only one who could ever say Worthy of every breath we could ever breathe We live for you oh we live for you
0: and only
3: there is no one like you there is none beside you open up my eyes in wonder and show me who you are and fill me with your heart and lead me in your love to those Oh, would you sing that again holy there and holy "I." I will build my life upon your love It is a firm foundation And I will put my trust in you alone And I will not be shaken And I will build my life upon your love it is a firm foundation and i will put my trust in you alone and i will not be shaken and holy there is no one like you there is none beside you open up my eyes in wonder and show me who you are and feel me with your heart and lead me in your arms to those all around me and holy there is no one like you there is none beside you open up my eyes in wonder and show me with your heart and fill me with your heart and lead me in your love to those around me and i will build my life upon your love it is a firm foundation and i will put my trust In you alone And I will not be shaken
2: And Father, we do thank you for your unfailing love, for your grace, for your peace that surpasses all understanding in the midst of a time where we're turning to answers, God. We know that you hold the answer. My prayer is that the church, that the church would be compassionate uh, to those around us, Lord, as this song spoke. Lord, that the church would not be stagnant, but the church would stand, that the church would be bold in a time like this. As many do not have hope for tomorrow, many are fearing to to come out of their houses because they know if they get that virus, they they don't know where they're going. God, my prayer is that we as the church could be that shining light and use whatever avenue we we need to share that that love of jesus christ so that those who are afraid will have that hope of eternal life through your one and only son jesus christ my prayer is that you speak through pastor Andy boldly today that you would allow him to speak to our hearts uh, from your word and that we would give you all praise all glory in jesus name we pray amen thank you you may be seated
1: amen thank you andy well, these uh, last uh, five weeks, uh, when we have not been able to meet together, uh, all my live stream messages have focused on placing your faith, faith in God uh, when faced with adversity. Uh, the first message was on how to move from fear uh, to faith in this time of national crisis. The second message was on what I called uh, the coronavirus Of the soul and I was referring of course to worry anxiety and we looked at how to cure it the third message was uh, Carissa my daughter and I uh, baking a cake to illustrate the truth of Romans 8 28 that God causes all things uh, to work together he blends all things together for the spiritual good of his child in the fourth message, the Easter message last Sunday, we saw because Jesus Christ was raised from the dead, we live with great expectations rooted in God's promises. As mentioned last Sunday, uh, we often have expectations of people which lead uh, to great disappointment, but not with Jesus. Uh, Romans 10:11 says, anyone, anyone, who trust in Him, will never, never be disappointed. Now let me raise a question that uh, will thrust us into today's message. Does that verse mean that if you trust God, if a believer trusts God, that he will never struggle with disappointment? No. That would be contrary to the experience of every champion of the faith in the Bible. Uh, let me give you just two examples, Job and Jeremiah. Both of these godly men battled thoughts and feelings that God had not only abandoned them in their suffering, but God was actually targeting them uh, For destruction. Uh, Let me give you a taste of their struggle with disappointment with God. In the space of maybe not more than two minutes, Job received news he had gone from being one of the wealthiest men on the earth uh, to a place of total destitution, and that he had lost all ten of his children. He then lost his health, contracting a horrible and painful disease. Job struggled with disappointment with God. Job 16, verse 7. Oh God, you have ground me down and devastated my family. Verse 9. God hates me and angrily tears me apart. He snaps his teeth at me and pierces me with his eyes. And then in verses 12 through 17, I was living quietly. Until God shattered me, he took me by the neck and broke me in pieces. Then he set me up as his target, and now his archers surround me. His arrows pierce me without mercy. The ground is wet with my blood. Again and again he smashes me, charging at me like a warrior. I wear burlap to show my grief. My pride lies in the dust. My eyes are red with weeping. Dark shadows circle my eyes. Yet I have done no wrong. My prayer is pure. And then in Job 19, verses 7 through 11, he says, I cry out, help, but no one answers me. I protest, but there is no justice. God has blocked my way, so I cannot move. He has plunged my path, into darkness. He has stripped me of my honor and removed the crown from my head. He has demolished me on every side, and I am finished. He has uprooted my hope like a fallen tree. His fury burns against me. He counts me as an enemy. And this helps us understand Uh, Job's remarks in Job 10 verses 18 through 22 speaking to God why then did you deliver me from my mother's womb? Why didn't you let me die at birth? It would be as though I had never existed going directly from the womb to the grave. I have only a few days left so leave me alone. This is Job telling God, just leave me alone that I may have a moment of comfort before I leave. Never to return to the land of darkness and utter gloom. It is a land as dark as midnight, a land of gloom and confusion where even the light is dark as midnight. That's a man struggling deeply with disappointment with God. Now consider Jeremiah. For over 50 years, maybe the greatest prophet that ever lived in terms of boldness and courage, he suffered nothing but public ridicule, scorn, abuse, beatings, scourging, imprisonments, and multiple plots to kill him for over 50 years. Now listen to his struggle with disappointment with God. In Jeremiah 15 verse 18, he wrote, Why? And he's speaking to God here. He says, Why, God? has my pain been perpetual without end and my wound incurable, refusing to be healed. And then listen to what he asked God, which is actually an accusation of God. He says, will you, God, indeed be to me like a deceptive stream with water that is unreliable? He's actually struggling Whether whether or not God is trustworthy. He's thinking God has been deceptive with him. That God is now unreliable. Then very similar to Job. Jeremiah says in Jeremiah 20 verses 14 and 15. Yet I curse the day I was born. May no one celebrate the day of my birth. I curse the messenger who told my father. Good news you have a son. And then in verses 17 and 18. Oh, that I had died in my mother's womb, that her body had been my grave. Why was I ever born? My entire life has been filled with trouble, sorrow, and shame. So going back to Romans ten eleven, it's not saying you will not struggle with disappointment with God. But it is saying if you put <coughs> your trust in Jesus, in the end, when God finishes your life story, you will not be disappointed. This is why it is important to persevere in faith and not give up on God before he completes the story. Although Job and Jeremiah struggled with disappointment with God, they never stopped trusting God. Job said, though he slay me, I will trust him. And Jeremiah said, blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord and whose hope is in the Lord. In the end, God rewarded the faith of both men. I think of Hebrews eleven six. 6. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. For he who comes to God must what? Believe that he is, and don't miss this Next phrase, and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. Now, that reward may not come until we get to heaven, but it will come. And again, when God finishes the story, it will always be a good one. Today's message is an encouragement uh, to persevere in faith in times of adversity. And it also provides me the opportunity to reinforce some of the key truths we have focused on uh, in the previous uh, four messages. So I want you to see now four characteristics of a persevering faith. And this is where God wants to bring you in your Christian life. And here's the first characteristic of a persevering faith. Persevering faith never demands God to accomplish a particular outcome but gives God the freedom to arrange the all things of life in the way he deems best to display his glory. Now, to drive this point home, let me give you a little pop quiz. And you can take it right there uh, in your home. Um, uh, Just three questions. And uh, it's going to be multiple choice. So just try to remember your answers and... Uh, we'll see how well you do. Here's the first one. Which brought God greater glory? And you only have two choices, A or B. Which brought God greater glory? A, God's power put on display through the extraordinary miracles and healings performed by the Apostle Paul as recorded in Acts 19:11, Or B, God's power put on display... Through Paul's infirmity. When God refused to heal Paul of his own thorn in the flesh. As recorded in 2 Corinthians twelve eight and 9. Here's the second one. Which of these brought God greater glory? And you have three choices here. A, B or C. God's miraculous deliverance of Peter from prison. When God sent an angel from heaven to free him in Acts 12. Or B. God leaving Paul in prison for four years, but using his imprisonment to spread the gospel in Rome, as we see in Philippians chapter 1, or C, God allowing the Smyrna believers' imprisonment to end in martyrdom, to end in their death, in order to demonstrate their willingness to remain faithful to Jesus to the point of death, as seen in Revelation 2. And then here's the third one, which of these brought God greater glory? And again, just A or B. A, the believers listed in Hebrews 11, who were delivered by the miraculous power of God and achieved great, great feats. Or B, the believers listed in Hebrews 11, who suffered unspeakable atrocities, yet demonstrated contentment with God after losing everything. So you got your answers down? Well, what are the right answers? Well, here it is. The answers are not for us to decide. A, B, C, or if you want to add a D or E, that is the prerogative of God alone in the life of each of His children. God wants you to give Him the freedom. To arrange the all things of your life in the way that He deems best for His glory. You know, we have emphasized the last four weeks, the one who loves you most knows what is best for you. We looked at Romans 8, 28 and 29, that God causes all things to work together for your spiritual good, to make you more like Jesus Christ. Do You believe this. And if you do, that frees you from seeking outcomes to seeking satisfaction in God alone. Seeking outcomes sets you up for disappointment when you do not get the outcome you seek. It's important to understand, when you are disappointed with God, it's because you are seeking from God something that has become more important to you than God himself. But no matter what you may be asking God for, no matter how good it might be, it cannot come close to satisfying you as much as God himself. So when I'm disappointed in God, I should view that as a call from God to turn to him, to find my satisfaction in my relationship with him, and to trust that the one who loves me most knows what is best for me. Now, let me just clarify one thing I'm not I'm not trying to communicate that you're not to ask God for things in prayer but I am saying that that should always be done in a spirit of great humility and submission realizing that again the one who loves me most knows what is best uh, for me and that God has a sovereign plan So although God may not give me the outcome I desire, that should not plunge me into disappointment. That should take me into deeper surrender to God. Again, giving Him the freedom to arrange the affairs of my life, confident that He knows what is best. Now, before we move on, let me make one more important point. The display of God's glory is so important to God. God is willing to temporarily... And that's a key word. He's willing to temporarily interrupt the happiness and well-being of his child and even be misunderstood and maligned in order to achieve his glory. Think of the raising of Lazarus from the dead. This is a very good example. When Jesus received the request from Lazarus' sisters, Martha and Mary, to come quickly Because Lazarus, the one Jesus loved, was sick. You remember, Jesus didn't move. He delayed coming. He said, this sickness will not end in death. No. It is for God's glory. So that God's Son may be glorified through it. And notice, Jesus said the sickness would not end in death. It was not going to end in death. Because why? Because Jesus knew that he was going to raise Lazarus from the dead. But Jesus also knew that that meant Lazarus would have to suffer and die. And Martha and Mary would deeply grieve the death of their brother. Jesus knew they would be hurt. He knew they would be disillusioned by his delay in coming. He also knew when he showed up, they would express their disappointment. Lord, if you had only been here, our brother would not have died. This was a family Jesus deeply loved. But he temporarily shook their world, let them plunge into the depths of grief and perplexity in order to demonstrate his glory by raising Lazarus from the dead. But also realize, and this is so important, he did not do this in some stoic, cold, or detached way. When Jesus saw the grief of the sisters, Jesus wept just like he weeps when you are hurting. He does not become angry when we struggle with disappointment with him, but he is deeply moved By our pain, by our struggle with our perplexity, just not understanding why God didn't act the way that we wanted Him to act. And He he meets us in that weakness, and He gives us grace. Always remember, always, always remember that although God uses suffering for your spiritual benefit and His greater glory... He does not love your suffering he loves you As Corey Tinboom a Christian Holocaust survivor often said there is no pit so deep that God's love is not deeper still Persevering faith never demands doesn't mean that we don't Ask, But we don't demand God to accomplish a particular outcome. But in humility and submission, we give God the freedom to arrange the all things of life in the way He deems best, to display His glory. The second characteristic of a persevering faith that God wants to develop in your life. Persevering faith does not guarantee escape from suffering, but but provides the courage to endure the suffering as a means to reveal Jesus Christ to others. At the heart of Christianity is a cross, not an escape hatch. We saw this in last Sunday's message when we looked at 2 Corinthians 4, and let me repeat that passage. This priceless treasure... Referring to the treasure of Jesus. We hold, as believers, so to speak, in a common earthenware jar. Referring to these frail bodies of ours. And and that is so in order that we might demonstrate the splendid power that belongs to God and not to us. We are handicapped on all sides. But we are never frustrated. We are puzzled but never in despair. We are persecuted, but we never have to stand it alone. We may be knocked down, but we are never knocked out. Every day we experience something of the death of the Lord Jesus so that we may also know the power of the life of Jesus in these bodies of ours. Now listen to these next verses. Yes, we who are living are always being exposed to death for Jesus' sake. Why? So that the life of Jesus may be plainly seen in our mortal bodies. We are always facing death, but this means that you know more and more of life. We contain the treasure of Jesus in earthenware jars, these bodies, which are easily broken by life's adversities. But as we just read, God allows our earthenware jars to be broken to release and reveal Christ's light, life and love to a lost world. Sadly, we focus more on escaping trials rather than enduring trials and using them as an opportunity to exalt Christ, to make him known to others. As a result, we have turned Christianity into a religion of escape. We must remember our Lord chose to endure the cross rather than escape it. Why? To bring salvation to the world. Therefore, why think it strange that Christ's followers are called to endure suffering to display Christ to others. Why well, think it's strange that God would allow us to be wounded to demonstrate Christ's forgiveness, or to suffer sorrow to reveal Christ's joy, or to be caught in a storm to show Christ's peace, or to know the pain of grief to display Christ's comfort, or to be hated and persecuted so that we can touch our persecutors with Christ's love. Never forget, God does not remove you from the fire. He refines you in the fire. But there's one other part to that formula. We often emphasize how God uses adversity to develop our faith, to make us more Christ-like. But that's not the end of it all. He unremoves from fire He keeps us in it to refine us for the ultimate purpose that we would shine bright. We would shine bright, revealing Him before the eyes of a watching world. So persevering faith does not guarantee escape from suffering, but provides the courage to endure suffering as a means to reveal Christ to others. At the heart of Christianity, is a cross, not an escape hatch. The third characteristic of a persevering faith, persevering faith does not look back to the cause of adversity by asking why God, but looks forward by asking what's next, God? You know, this year, 2020, brings me to 50 years of knowing and walking with God. This year also marks 50 years in ministry. As I was thrust into ministry almost immediately after my conversion began ministry as a um, uh, youth director. Uh, After 50 years of knowing and serving Christ, I can honestly say I have never once seen any value with me or any other believer in asking Why God in a time of adversity? Now, as we have said, God does not get upset when we ask the question. He understands our struggle with disappointment. But we do need to realize if we just continue to ask why God, if we get stuck there, it's only going to keep you longer in that pit of disappointment and depression. If you persist, in asking why God, I can tell you exactly what will happen. You will move from disappointment to full-blown anger with God and bitterness with others. Faith in God's integrity and power to do what He promised in His Word empowers you to look beyond past Wounds and present suffering to anticipate what's next God the story is not over Job was wrong when he said I am finished in reality God was just getting started with Job faith places confidence in a loving heavenly daddy my daddy who sits on the throne My daddy, who will not allow anything to touch me unless he knows he can use it for my spiritual development. Therefore, if God is for us, who can be against us? Faith lives in the hope that the best is ahead and keeps reaching for it. As we saw in our Easter message, it may be Friday, but Sunday is a coming. To keep asking, why God? will only cause you to waste your sorrow, to squander the opportunity for spiritual growth, and to gain a greater intimacy with God. Be careful. Be be so careful not to close the book on God before He's finished your life story. Because when you allow God to finish the story, it will have a good ending. I can guarantee you that. The fourth and final characteristic of persevering faith that I'll mention this morning is that persevering faith's goal. What what is the goal of it all, from God's perspective? what What's the what's the end game? Well, persevering faith's goal is to bring me to the place where I can say with authenticity, where I know experientially. In other words, I just don't know it here as a as an Uh, intellectual exercise or academic exercise in God's word I I not only know it but I've experienced it that Christ's love is enough that Christ's grace is enough that Christ's strength is enough that Christ is enough even if I've lost everything else so first Christ's love is enough and I don't need to give any commentary here. Just give you the scripture. Christ's love is enough. Romans eight thirty seven through 39. But in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Christ's grace is enough. 2 Corinthians 12, verses 9 and 10. And he has said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I am well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Christ's strength is enough. Philippians 4 11 through 13. I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know how to get along with humble means, and I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. And then Christ is enough. Philippians 1.21 Paul's sitting in prison, awaiting trial before Nero. Doesn't know if he's going to live or die when he makes this statement. And he says, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. In the Greek text, it's, it's even more stunning. It, it, it reads simply, to live Christ, to die gain. It's, it's, it's a very dramatic exclamation of, of Paul's confidence in Christ and that they can strip him of everything and and at this point he had been in prison for close to four years and he's able to say you can strip me of everything but you can't take my Jesus from me because he said he will never leave me or forsake me and if I have Jesus that's enough well we'll end this morning where we began Romans 10:11. anyone who trusts in him will never be disappointed so let me just give you those four points one more time and then I'll let Andy close this out uh, with uh, the great old hymn very appropriate for this message trust and obey number one persevering faith never demands God to accomplish a particular outcome, but gives God the freedom to arrange the all things of life in the way He deems best to display His glory. Second, persevering faith does not guarantee escape. I'm not trying to say God doesn't give great deliverances. We know that's true in the Scripture. But He doesn't guarantee that. But it does provide the courage to endure suffering As a means to reveal Christ to others. At the heart of Christianity is a cross, not an escape hatch. And then, third, persevering faith does not look back to the cause of adversity by asking why God, but looks forward by asking with excitement into what's next, God, knowing that God's not finished with the story. And I can trust Him to bring it to a good end. And then, four, persevering faith's goal is to bring me to the place where I know experientially Christ is enough. Jesus is all I need. So I encourage you, trust and obey, for there is no other way.